Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Tonight on The Readout. Would a judge actually do that which would happen to a normal person and yeah. put somebody in jail for violating uh, an order not to uh, a, a gag order. I, I suspect that's not likely to happen um, with this defendant, but any other defendant uh, would probably be facing. You don't think that she would put him in jail or that they would decide to put him in jail ultimately? I, I, I just don't think so. So according to former Attorney General Eric Holder, any other defendant would be sent to the slammer for violating a gag order. So what's stopping the federal judge in Donald Trump's January 6th coup case from making good on her vow to treat Trump just like any other defendant? Plus, Senate Democrats set their sights on a couple of conservative Supreme Court justices' besties in their quest to impose some level of ethics oversight on the high court. And with abortion rights emerging as a driving force in upcoming elections, does anyone else find it weird that House Republicans have chosen an anti-abortion extremist as their new speaker? And we begin tonight with a constitutional question that could determine whether Donald Trump appears on a state ballot next year. The House January 6th committee laid out in stunning detail the events of that day, using video evidence to show meticulously how Donald Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of the attack. Now, an historic trial is underway in Colorado to determine whether Trump should be disqualified from appearing on the ballot in 2024 because of his role in inciting the events of January 6th. The lawsuit filed by six Colorado voters with the help of watchdog group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington argues that Donald Trump is ineligible to hold office again under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment passed after the Civil War. It prohibits anyone from holding office who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Lawyers for the plaintiffs argue that Donald Trump violated his oath of office trying to overturn the 2020 election, leading to the attack on the Capitol, which was an insurrection. Trump's attorneys argue the lawsuit is an effort to get the court to endorse the House January 6th committee report. Washington, D.C. police officer Daniel Hodges was the first witness to testify on Monday. He spoke about the injuries he received that day after being crushed in a door and, as he testified, being punched, kicked, beaten and sprayed with pepper spray. I was afraid for my life and for that, my colleagues. I was afraid for um the people in the United States Capitol. California Congressman Eric Swalwell also testified on Monday about how he and other lawmakers monitored Donald Trump's comments as insurrectionists breached the Capitol to try to stop the certification of the election. Colorado's Secretary of State Jenna Griswold is named as a defendant in addition to Trump. The suit would force her to bar Trump from the ballot. Griswold has said that she will comply with whatever the court decides. Other secretaries of state in battleground states have also grappled with the issue of the insurrection clause. Arizona's Adrian Fontes has said the issue is an unanswered question and up to the courts, not to him. 
New Hampshire's David Scanlon said he had no legal basis for invoking the 14th Amendment and wouldn't block Trump. And Georgia's Brad Raffensperger claimed in a Wall Street Journal op-ed that he can't block Trump and it should be left up to the voters to decide. And that illustrates the two questions at stake. There is the legal question that will continue through the courts. Colorado's trial is only the first litigation on the insurrection clause. Last month in California, legislators asked the state's attorney general to seek a court opinion about whether Trump is disqualified under the 14th Amendment. And Trump faced a similar lawsuit seeking to disqualify him based on the 14th Amendment in Minnesota and Michigan. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has said she won't keep Trump from the ballot unless the courts direct her to. And today, Donald Trump filed an injunction to try to prevent her from blocking him from appearing on the ballot. Then there's the political question. How it looks to voters if secretaries of state are the ones to make the call to keep Trump off the ballot. Colorado's Jenna Griswold responded to that point. I am a Democratic secretary of state and I did not bring this case. I'm actually a party as a defendant because I certify the ballot. Uh, And I would just say, look, um, Colorado Republican and unaffiliated voters brought this case. I think it is very reasonable to determine whether the U.S. Constitution is in play. If there's something unclear, it's an appropriate uh, mechanism to file a lawsuit. What is inappropriate is trying to steal an election from the American people. I'm joined now by Maryland Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, member of the Select Committee to investigate January 6th and the House Judiciary Committee, as well as the lead impeachment manager in 2021. And Lawrence Tribe, Professor Emeritus at Harvard University. Uh, I am lucky enough to have not one but two constitutional scholars uh, in front of me right now, which is really exciting to get to talk to both of you. So I just want to ask each of you in turn to just give us your evaluation of the merits of this case. It was brought by four registered Republicans and two unaffiliated Colorado voters, uh, and they have until March 5th to decide. That's when the primary is in Colorado. Uh, I will uh, make deference to the congressman and go to you first, sir. Um, you know the facts better than any of us who are sitting here uh, about what Donald Trump did on January 6th. Is this case meritorious in your view? Well, I should yield to my constitutional law professor, uh, Larry Tribe, who taught me everything I know about the Constitution. But let let me give you my sense of it, Joy. Um, I don't really understand people who uh, control access to the ballot saying, well, we'll let the voters decide. I mean, if someone showed up trying to run for president at 19 years old, Um, their answer wouldn't be, well, let's let the voters decide. They would say, let's consult the Constitution, which says you got to be 35 years old in order to run for president. If uh, Jennifer Granholm, the secretary of energy, showed up or Arnold Schwarzenegger, both of whom were born abroad, and they try to run for president, I don't think anybody would say, well, let's just let the voters decide. They'd say that violates the rules of the Constitution, which says you have to be a natural born U.S. citizen. And it's the same thing here. The question, uh, the hard question is not should the courts end up deciding, because the courts will have to decide this because it is a constitutional question. The the hard part is, did he engage in insurrection or rebellion? That is the hard part for some people. Is incitement to insurrection participating in insurrection? The House of Representatives already impeached him for inciting insurrection. 57 of 100 senators voted uh, to determine that he did uh, engage in incitement to insurrection. So you've got robust bipartisan bicameral majorities defining that as a legislative fact. But I think the alternative argument will be, no, you need somehow a criminal conviction first. It's not enough 
to show that it happened. And, you know, against that, I would simply say the language of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says that you can't run for office if you've sworn an oath to the Constitution, but then you've participated in insurrection or rebellion. It doesn't say if you've been convicted of insurrection or rebellion. But I think that that will become really the heart of the legal argument. Uh, now that I have allowed uh, your former student to show you that he, uh, how much he learned, uh, I will not ask you to grade him, Professor Tribe, uh, but I will now uh, turn it over to you. Now, in this case, the, the 14th Amendment actually has been used. Uh, this was used to remove from office a New Mexico County commissioner who entered the Capitol on January 6th. And there was a legal trial uh, for him doing that. So it has been used in the past. But I would love to hear your take on the merits of this case. And I will just really quickly say that the judge— uh, would like these things addressed. And you can respond to it. The history and application of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Is Section 3 self-executing, which I think is an important question. Does it need to be executed by others? Uh, Does Section 3 apply to presidents, the meaning of engaged and insurrection as used in Section 3? And did Trump's actions meet the standard uh, for Section 3? Your thoughts, sir? Well, I think the answers to all of those questions are quite clear. It is clear that Section 3 by itself, says that anyone who engages in an insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution of the United States, that's the phrase, not just against the government, but against the Constitution of the United States, is not entitled to another bite at that apple. Now, Donald Trump says it might apply to a county commissioner in New Mexico, but it doesn't apply to him because it doesn't apply to the president. That is an absurd argument. I won't go into the details, but it's clear that if there's any officer in the country who would be a danger to democracy if he were allowed again to manipulate our processes, it is someone who took the oath as president and then turned around and tried to overturn the central part of the Constitution which is the transition from one president to another in accord with who actually wins the election, not who says, I believe I won, I thought I won, I should have won, how could I have lost to this guy, but the person whom our legal process determines as the winner. Now, one of the things that Mr. Trump, and by the way, in the Michigan filing today, he calls himself President Trump 35 (laughs) times. He seems to think that he won the election, but I have news for him. The Constitution says that you serve for only four years, and if you lose the Electoral College, that's the end of it. He argues, I never really took the kind of oath that Section 3 talks about. It talks about an oath to support the Constitution. I didn't take that oath. I took the oath that the president takes. It's an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Now, that's how ridiculous the arguments get. The legal arguments are clear, but the political argument is not so clear. A lot of people say, even though Congressman Raskin's examples are perfect, they wouldn't apply it to a 30-year-old or to someone not a natural-born citizen, but they say, let the people decide, even if someone is not eligible. That's not the way the people who fought the Civil War decided we needed to handle it. They decided that you needed to disqualify anyone who basically is a traitor to the Constitution. 
that kind of person is dangerous. Dangerous as in a person who might attempt to seize power and then never let go. That's the history of autocracies around the world. Somebody manages to make it into office and then they decide they're going to stay. Yeah. That's the danger against which this language is designed to protect us all. You know, and the irony, Congressman Raskin, well said, the, the irony is that Donald Trump is a birther. So people who supported his view thought that Barack Obama should be automatically disqualified from being on ballots. And they literally tried to make that happen. Uh, and so, you know, to the, he doesn't want to be held to the standard. He attempted to illegally and unlawfully and raci- in a racist manner hold, you know, an American, uh, you know, Barack Obama to. But let me go to you on the political question, because I think the political question well, is important. And you're a politician. The, the question of how it would look to voters, right? But they tried, this was tried on Marjorie Taylor Greene. She survived it. It was tried on Madison Cawthorn. He didn't, he lost a primary, so it didn't really matter. But how do you think that the politic, the politics would play out? Would it look like the deep state stopped Trump from being on the ballot rather than the Constitution? Well, and that goes back to the question of democracy you were raising and those who are saying, well, just let the voters decide. Here's the problem. Donald Trump tried to overthrow constitutional democracy. And the Constitution has a mechanism for dealing with that, which is a a very strongly pro-democratic mechanism. It says this is a big country. There are a lot of people can be president. You don't have to go back to somebody who's already proven himself to be untrustworthy by being disloyal to the Constitution and trying to overthrow the whole constitutional order. So just as it is pro-constitutional and pro-democratic to say, we're going to enforce the provisions that no, a 14-year-old can't run for president, no matter how brilliant he is. Also, if it's been shown that you've engaged in an insurrection against the Constitution, you can't be trusted once again to swear an oath to it and then uphold you know, the whole constitutional system. If you look at what's gone on in other countries, when people have attempted a coup and they've been rejected at the last moment, that's a sign they're going to try a coup again. And is there anybody who really believes that if Donald Trump somehow got his way back into office, he would ever leave? If you believe that, you're too innocent to be let out of the house by yourself. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Very quickly, with the time we have left, I want to ask a sort of slightly different question uh, to you, Professor Tribe. Uh, former Attorney General Holder said that Donald Trump would be in jail if it was anyone else. I think everyone legal expert agrees on that. What do you think are the chances that one of these judges, or at least this judge in the in the uh, January 6th insurrection case, will eventually use jail as a sanction if he continues violating the protective order? Well, I do think she will use the threat of jail, but there are a lot of things she can do in between. She kind of escalating financial fines, a million dollars a day, two million, eventually even Donald Trump might notice. And in any event, the idea that because he's Donald Trump and calls himself president and was once president, that we certainly can't put him in jail. Frankly, I don't buy it. What's the what's the immunity? There is yeah. no legal immunity and the Secret Service could accompany him. So I think we have to start thinking that he is not above the law. No one is above the law. Real politic would tell me that Judge Chutkin might only threaten it, use it as a last resort. It's not going to be easily done, but I can't take it off the table. 
Uh, this has been so much fun. I could do this for an hour. Thank you all for, for, for making time. Uh, it's always a treat to talk to both of you. Congressman Jamie Raskin, Lawrence Tribe, two of the very best uh, at telling the Constitution, telling you what's in the Constitution, making it make sense. Thank you. Up next on The Readout, uh, Senate Democrats would like to ask a couple of wealthy conservative activists about their history of chumming around with and lavishing expensive gifts on America's conservative Supreme Court justices. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. At this point, it has become abundantly clear that a certain number of associate justices on the Supreme Court have ignored some pretty basic ethical standards for their own personal benefit. We know much of this because of the dogged work of ProPublica and other media organizations. What we've learned is a truly disturbing array of obviously questionable behavior from justices interacting with wealthy benefactors who have very specific political agendas and just so happen to share their generosity with the justices. Justice Samuel Alito got a luxury vacation paid for by Republican donor Paul Singer, who has key cases before the court this year. Justice Alito was also accused of previewing an upcoming decision about contraceptive access to anti-choice lobbyists who were breaking bread with him and his wife. He denied sharing the information. Then there's Justice Clarence Thomas, who almost deserves a category of his own for behaving like a kept man. This year alone, we learned that he failed to report many, 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 many gifts, including from, including from his bestie Harlan Crow, a billionaire Nepo baby with a penchant for Nazi paraphernalia, the gifts included a string of luxury vacations, yacht trips, private jets, and private school tuition for his great nephew. He also bought Thomas's childhood home where his mother lived, making Crow her landlord. He also, we, we also learned that Thomas attended the exclusive annual men-only summit at Bohemian Grove, care of the Koch brothers, who also have key interests before the court. Oh, and did I mention that Justice Thomas, who loves to tell Americans he's just a humble man preferring a simpler life behind the wheel of an RV? Got that RV from a rich friend. They said it was a deal or a loan, but guess what we found out yesterday from the Senate Judiciary Committee by the New York Times? Thomas never repaid a substantial portion of a $267,000 loan from that rich friend, raising questions about whether the loan was properly reported on his taxes. Many of these stories have a common thread, and that is Leonard Leo, the man who single-handedly reshaped the Supreme Court and the federal bench across the country. Five of the current conservative justices are handpicked from the Federalist Society, an organization he used to run. Leo has marshaled billions of dollars into reshaping the court and the country. And he is close personal friends with Justice Thomas 
and Harlan Crow, to the point where he is in a painting Crow commissioned that includes Justice Thomas and a number of other conservative activists. Leo has worked closely with Ginny Thomas as she promotes right-wing activism. In fact, according to reports, Leo helped send money her way without a clear explanation of why or for what. Yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee announced that they will vote to authorize issuing subpoenas for a few of those benefactors. This includes real estate billionaire Harlan Crow, mortgage company owner Robin Arkley II, and Leonard Leo. I'm joined now by California Senator Alex Padilla, member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Thank you so much for being here, Senator Padilla. Uh, let's talk about this. Uh, the reaction that you have gotten on the Senate Judiciary Committee from uh, people like Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo has been dismissive, to say the least. Leonard Leo um, has said the following. I would not bow to the vile and disgusting liberal McCarthyism that seeks to destroy the Supreme Court simply because it follows a constitution rather than political agenda. Um, what do you expect the reaction to be to these subpoenas? Uh, well, this uh, is not the first step. It's not the last step in our investigative efforts. Joy, uh, first of all, let me say happy Halloween. Uh, what the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee is on the verge of doing, I believe, is certainly not a trick, and it's certainly not a treat. Uh, issuing subpoenas by the committee has only been done a handful of times uh, over the years. So it is a very, very significant step. And it wouldn't be necessary if we had individuals willing to cooperate with the committee. You know, for the folks who want to uh, uh, criticize or critique the Senate Judiciary Committee for wanting to impose an enforceable code of ethics on Supreme Court justices, uh, it's not that we're not trying to do it the other way. The Supreme Court has had opportunities to do it for themselves. They refuse. We've begun investigation, trying to gather information. Thank God for the ProPublica and other uh, investigative reporting that has led us to this point, but we know there's a lot more there, and that's why we give Harlan Crow, uh, the others, an opportunity to come forward with the information that we're seeking. And if they refuse to cooperate, first of all, what do they have to hide? A whole lot. And that's mm-hmm. why these subpoenas seem to be necessary. And you, you started to say well, if they refuse to cooperate, because we have seen people like even Jim Jordan, who almost became Speaker of the House uh, per his caucus, uh, defy subpoenas. People like Steve Bannon, others in the Trump world have seemed to um, confer upon themselves uh, the power to avoid and ignore subpoenas from Democratic-led um, uh, committees. What happens if they fail to comply? Will there be contempt of Congress um, requests made? Uh, exactly. If if they refuse to comply to subpoenas, then it's, you know, we continue to escalate as well. But I wanted to emphasize that point because anybody who accuses us from uh, for shooting from the hip has it all wrong. We've given them ample opportunity to supply the information that we're looking for to participate with the committee, uh, and they simply refuse to do so. Joe, you've covered a whole lot of legal issues over the years. When somebody has nothing to hide, they are more than happy to cooperate with the authorities, right, in the interest of uh, finding justice. Uh, But when you refuse to cooperate, when you do nothing but obstruct, it begs the question, why? Thank goodness, thank good. Uh, All the investigative reporters have brought to light the information that they have, but we know there's so much more there. We Mm -hmm. need that information to to better enforce the law and to impose the necessary enforceable code of ethics on the Supreme Court that they refuse to adopt for themselves. Is there any thought of subpoenaing Ginny Thomas? 
Uh, well, as uh, any good investigation, you go where the information takes you. Uh, and we already know there's information on the uh, uh, money that has come to Jenny Thomas's uh, quote-unquote nonprofit organization, uh, the role and activity she had around the January 6th insurrection. Uh, she's obviously married to a, uh, an associate uh, justice of the Supreme Court. So there's a lot of there there, and that's why this is not the first step nor the last step in an investigation. Uh, let's talk about some of the cases that are coming uh, before the court. Should the Consumer Financial um, Bureau uh, exist, the CFPB? Uh, can public officials block critics on social media evaluating the 2018 First Step Act? Um, it, the one that kind of stands out to me is the question of a wealth tax, um, whether or not the Chevron deference doctrine uh, exists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, about gerrymandering, um, whether or not, you know, one can legally uh, gerrymander based on politics, uh, if not race. The wealth tax one stands out to me because it seems like the people that you're testifying, that it, that it impacts them directly. Do you, sir, believe and have your investigations revealed that part of the Supreme Court is for sale, that they are exchanging votes uh, and rulings for largesse? Well, that's at the core of our activity here, the crisis of confidence. There is not the public confidence in the Supreme Court of the United States that the people deserve. How can the highest court, the land, the most powerful justices in America not have a code of ethics that they have to uh, comply with? And we know that Leonard Leo is, uh, as my colleague has put it, the spider in the middle of a dark web of money influencing the Supreme Court. Money in politics, that's an important debate. Money in the court system? Really? Uh, but that's what we have here when billionaires are entertaining Supreme Court justices on their private planes, you know, at these expensive resorts, on these uh, exotic fishing expeditions, when they have so much at stake with the questions before the Supreme Court when it comes to taxation, when it comes to uh, their livelihood. There's a clear conflict of interest that needs to be spelled out for Supreme Court justices, rules for when they need to recuse themselves and explain to the public why they need to refuse themselves, uh, and so much more. So, uh, the, again, this is not a trick. Mm -hmm. This is not a treat. This is serious. Uh, we appreciate the Halloween reference. Happy Halloween to you, too, sir. Senator Alex Padilla, thank you. And coming up next, coming up, cheers, coming up next on The Readout, next week's elections in Ohio and Virginia are shaping up as bellwethers on the fate of abortion rights. That's next. Loved his trick-or-treat trick or reference. That was good. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow.
One of the pivotal issues that will be front and center in next year's election is abortion rights. House Republicans have done themselves no favors in unanimously voting for Mike Johnson as their new speaker. He is so virulently anti-abortion that he once called abortion, quote, a holocaust, and said the judicial philosophy legalizing it was no different than Hitler's. While Republicans called Johnson's election a victory because it united the caucus, he may very well turn out to be a political albatross that weighs down the party's candidates in close races. We will get our latest chance to see how intense the feelings about abortion are when voters go to the polls next week in two key states. There's Ohio, which will decide whether to enshrine reproductive rights in the state constitution, and Virginia, where control of the legislature could determine if it will be the last state in the South to roll back abortion rights since Roe v. Wade was overturned. I'm joined now by Minnie Timuraju, president and CEO of Reproductive Freedom for All, and Simon Rosenberg, Democratic strategist, strategist and author of the Hopium Chronicles Substack. Thank you both for being here. Minnie, I do want to start with you, um, because the question is whether the intensity is still there. We know that abortion moved the election in 2022. Do you see the issue being as hot, as salient, in states like Ohio and Virginia now. Absolutely. And I just want to add Pennsylvania there, too, where we have a Supreme Court race that could also be a bellwether going in uh, to 2024. Um, We absolutely believe it's still salient. Every poll after poll shows that it is a top motivator for Democrats, but also independents and some Republicans as well. You know, it's such a it's such a powerful issue that we see over 80 percent of voters in Pennsylvania, you know, over 58 percent is the number in Ohio right now, 58 percent. Um, And in Virginia, the majority, close to 80 percent in Virginia support abortion rights, which is why you're seeing Glenn Youngkin and his party uh, blatantly lying about their positions on abortion and candidates scrubbing their positions from their websites. You know, I just got back from trick or treating with my kids and there's nothing more horrifying right now than these extremist Republicans just blatantly lying about their positions. Yeah, I mean, you you can tell, Simon, that even though they didn't want to admit it and pretended that uh, that they that they thought the last election was going to be about inflation and crime, they know, I think, Republicans, that it was abortion, that abortion is what did it to them. So I wonder how the two parties are sort of playing these elections out in Ohio and in Virginia. And is abortion front and center in the way that the campaigns are are are, are, are acting? Or at it's least in really Virginia, I should say. Sorry, in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. yeah. No, I mean, it's really important to recognize that that strong performance we had in 2022 has carried over all across the country this year. You know, we've about, we've had 27 special elections in all different parts of the country where Democrats have outperformed their 2020 numbers by eight points. 538 just uh, did an analysis showing that in over 30 races, we're outperforming our partisan lean, as they call it, of the districts by over 10 points. So that strong heightened performance that we saw all across the country in 2022, in part because of abortion, has continued in race after race all across the country. Look what happened in Ohio just in August, right? We got all the way up to 57% in Ohio on that pre-ballot initiative you know, that happened. So what we're seeing now is what I'm hearing from on the ground is that polling is good in Ohio. Turnout is really strong in the early days. In Virginia, polling is good. Uh, money is good. The early vote is a little bit concerning. We're not really exactly where we want to be. And so, you know, we've got work to do to get to where we want to be in Virginia. We're not there yet, but I, I'm optimistic by Election you know, Day we can get there. 
Uh, you know, Minnie, the, the Virginia is concerning, I think, for a lot of reasons. I mean, uh, Glenn Youngkin has made it pretty clear that if they win the majority uh, in both the Senate and the House there, his next step uh, is going to be to get on board with an abortion ban there. But also, if he wins, national Republicans are already signaling that, that would be their signal to go for a national 15-week abortion ban. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to there's no part of the country where abortion bans are popular, period. Every time we've gone directly to the people around an abortion ban or a ballot initiative, uh, we've won on our side. By our side, I mean the reproductive freedom side. So he knows the only way to get this done, and he's betting create a roadmap for Republicans across the country, is to be able to confuse voters with disinformation about what a 15-week abortion ban is. It is still a ban. It is not a limit. It is not consensus. It is not a compromise. But they're hoping that through rhetoric and messaging, they can shift uh, and confuse voters about what this is. The problem is story after story, report after report shows that abortion bans are very unpopular, exceptions don't work, and American voters don't want them. And we, I, I will note that in Ohio, uh, Mike DeWine, the governor there, is trying to say, wait, 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 if you just don't pass this uh, constitutional amendment, we'll make our abortion ban less horrible. We'll pass exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother, as if that's going to make women change their minds. Um, let's talk about Mike Johnson just for a moment, um, Simon. Putting him in yeah. place <clears throat> is almost an advertisement for the Democratic Party getting the House back. I mean, there's a lot of other challenges. We know there's issues on Israel, Palestine and other things that for young voters. But this particular issue does not play well, even with Republicans. The Mike Johnson factor for you, because he definitely would push an, a national abortion ban through the House. Well, a national abortion ban with no exceptions, right? I mean, Mike Johnson is among the most significant abortion extremists that we've seen in our politics in, in recent decades. I mean, there's no one to his right in the Republican Party. I mean, that bill that he introduced in the House to have a national ban with no exceptions only had 20 co-sponsors. I mean, so Republicans were running away from that bill. So it guarantees your introduction, I think, Joy, was correct. I mean, it guarantees that a national abortion ban with no exceptions is going to be on the ballot in 2024, period. I mean, that's going to be the Republican Party's position. You elect the Republicans in the House, you elect a Republican president, you get a national abortion ban with no exceptions. It's a huge problem for them. And I think that, you know, it's my, and it's why I think that their, their attempt to be Houdini here and try to escape out of the disaster that they've created for themselves, it's just not going to work. They may have a victory here or there, but over time, they're on the wrong side of history here, and they're paying a terrible price for it politically and will continue to in the elections to come. Uh, let me just put up the map uh, for those of you as we uh, as a segment. Uh, this is where abortion is banned now. It, it kind of looks like the old slave states and free states. Uh, but if Virginia joins that list, you would essentially have a solid wall um, of, you know, your womb belongs to the state throughout the entire red part of the southeast uh, of the United States plus Texas. It's pretty scary. Minnie Timuraju, Simon Rosenberg, thank you both very much. As Israeli ground forces push further into Gaza, questions remain about U.S. goals in the war-torn region. Just back from Israel, Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times joins me next to discuss. Stay right there.
as Israeli forces push deeper into Gaza and intensify their bombardment of the region. Today in Washington, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Secretary of State Antony Blinken testified before the Senate Appropriations Committee, making the case for President Biden's $100 billion request for aid for both Israel and Ukraine. Many are again making the bet that we're too divided, we're too distracted at home to stay the course. That's what's at stake with President Biden's national security supplemental funding request. In both Israel and Ukraine, democracies are fighting ruthless foes who are out to annihilate them. We will not let Hamas or Putin win. As the secretary spoke, dozens of protesters sat behind them, holding up their red-stained hands, with some even interrupting the testimony to demand a ceasefire. Great by the Committee will suspend. Let them be at the table. Why aren't they at the table? Ceasefire now! I beg you! Ceasefire now! It was a stark illustration of just how deep the divide has become over the administration's response to this war. And it comes amid growing questions about America's role in this conflict and what exactly our leaders have signed off on especially as new reporting today from the Associated Press says that it is an Israeli government ministry drafted a proposal to transfer the 2.3 million refugees in Gaza to Egypt's Sinai Peninsula. <clears throat> we should note that Israel's intelligence ministry conducts research. It does not set policy. And the prime minister's office says that this is an initial thinking document of which there are dozens of, at all levels of government. But it is still significant. As the AP writes, its conclusions deepened long-standing Egyptian fears that Israel wants to make Gaza into Egypt's problem and revived for Palestinians memories of their greatest trauma, the uprooting of hundreds of thousands of people who fled or were forced from their homes during the fighting surrounding Israel's creation in 1948. This report comes just days after President Biden tweeted that during a call with Egypt's president, he reaffirmed his commitment to ensure that Palestinians in Gaza are not displaced to Egypt or any other nation. This is something we'd love to ask the administration about directly on this show. We reached out to National Security Council spokesman John Kirby to come on and talk about it. He was unavailable, but the invitation to him or to any other White House official still stands. Joining me now is Nicholas Kristof, New York Times columnist who spent the last couple of weeks in Israel and the West Bank. I'm eager to talk to you about what you learned uh, and your column on that is excellent. But really quickly, I would love for you to respond to this AP reporting. And there's been reporting previously um, about the desire among some in Israeli leadership to mass transfer Palestinians out of Gaza into Egypt. Um, and this is what was in the OMB letter that was, you know, provided to Congress regarding Biden's national security funding request. It said funding will also provide life-saving humanitarian assistance in Israel and in areas impacted by the situation in Israel. These resources would support displaced and conflict-affected civilians, including Palestinian refugees in Gaza and the West Bank, and to address potential needs of Gazans fleeing to neighboring countries. This would include food, non-food items, health care, emergency shelter. It goes on to talk about potential critical humanitarian infrastructure costs for refugee populations outside of Gaza. It sounds like the administration is at least thinking through and preparing for the idea of an outflux of Gazans. But that uh, is not, I don't think, according to international law, for them to be pushed out. What do you make of this? 
So for Palestinians, this is a complete non-starter and touches on this very sensitive issue of you know, what they call the Nakba, the, the, the catastrophe of when they uh, fled or in many cases were evicted in 1948. And uh, you know, the administration apparently did uh, approach Egypt to suggest that some Gazans might go into the Sinai. Uh, that Every Palestinian I spoke to uh, in Gaza was just, uh, you know, they felt that they were being pushed out once more, that if they left into Egypt, they would not be allowed back. Uh, people in the West Bank shared that view that this is partly an operation to drive people out forever uh, from Gaza. Even moving from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, uh, people worried that uh, they would not be allowed back into the northern part of the area. So, uh, you know, I don't, I, I think the administration didn't appreciate just the sensitivity of this issue of moving people. And plus, it also raises, you say, you know, fundamental questions about international law and uh, forced removal of populations. So can you talk a little bit about, you, you know, you, you were in you were in the West Bank. Um, you were also in Israel. Talk, talk about what people were telling you. Um, we know there was a bombing of a refugee camp today, um, you know, by airstrikes to try to kill a Hamas leader total devastation there. It's devastating, the pictures coming out. What were you told by people? So um, I uh, I was in touch with people in Gaza by WhatsApp, by phone, and the pictures they describe are just agonizing uh, in terms of, uh, you know, not getting access to health care, uh, kids being operated on without anesthetic, uh, obviously, vast numbers of children, by my count, uh, a child has died since the beginning of the war about once every 10 minutes. Um, and, uh, you know, la- uh, as if, if, if power can't get into fuel generators, then people on dialysis die, then uh, kids in incubators die. And just the fear of undergoing this constant bombardment and not knowing if you're next uh, has been, you know, completely staggering. I think that it's also, uh, radicalize the West Bank. One of the things that I worry about is that there will be mass unrest in the West Bank as uh, people, you know, all people are talking about is uh, what's happening in Gaza. And there is also a widespread conviction among people in the West Bank that the uh, explosion at the hospital week ago, um, that that was not only caused by Israel, but in fact was a deliberate strike on a hospital by Israel. You know, in fact, my best guess is that it was probably a uh, Islamic Jihad rocket that went astray. But that's not the perception in the West Bank. Right. You've expressed some skepticism. You spoke with Ehud Barak, former uh, prime minister there, but you've expressed some skepticism that this ground incursion and bombing campaign will somehow eradicate Hamas. Say more on that. Joy, I mean, you and I have both seen... uh, Lots of conflicts where people start off uh, very bullish on invasions, and then as it goes on, it turns out to be more of a quagmire. And uh, I, uh, you know, I think that is what we're what is happening here. I don't think that Israel has a real plan for house to house fighting. I don't think it has a plan to extricate itself afterward. And what will happen, undoubtedly, is vast numbers of civilian casualties. And what I've seen in the past and in previous trips to Gaza is that those bombings radicalize people. And when a kid's parents are killed, that kid wants to be a shaheed, a martyr. They want to fight back. And just as so many Israelis 
understandably want vengeance after the terrible attacks of October 7th, then a lot of Palestinians in turn are going to want vengeance for what is happening to them right now. And so at a practical level and at a moral level, I think, you know, a major ground invasion that is protracted is going to be a disaster. Uh, and I'm, I'm showing some pictures there that show just sort of what that devastation looks like. I think a lot of uh, a lot of Americans agree with you. Uh, Nicholas Kristof, uh, glad you made it home safely. Thank you so much uh, for being on tonight. Much appreciated. Thank we'll you. Right Joy. Cheers. Whatever your taste on this Halloween, we have plenty on tap for you over at the Readout blog. Tonight, our writer Jahan Jones highlights an incident involving House Speaker Mike Johnson and why it's being condemned by black journalists nationwide. Also, be sure to read his thoughts on Republicans' free speech reversal and his report on Mark Robinson, the rising Republican star who's in a hot water over his toxic Facebook feed. All that and much more at msnbc.com slash readout blog. And that is tonight's readout. Happy Halloween, everyone. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app.